This morning we have the honor of having Louis Gomart here to come and speak with us. He is a U.S. representative. He's in his eighth term, began 2005, and he is serving there, and he is coming today to share with us. And he represents us, but more importantly, he's a believer, and he represents Christ. And we have a great opportunity to pray, pray for our representatives, pray especially for Louis, that he would have an opportunity to share the gospel wherever he goes That's our call. Our call is to be a a witness wherever we are to tell the name of Christ and and proclaim it loudly. And we're so thankful that he's come. Would you welcome him um, as he comes and gives us a message this morning? Thank you. Thank you. And thank you, choir. That was superb. All the music and orchestra, just fabulous. Um, But... You know, as you know, in this world where we could have a cross that gives us salvation, uh, you get the sour with the sweet and you get the sermon with the singing. So anyway, um, it's just the way it goes. (laughs) I was told uh, um, a friend and his son were riding along in the truck and a little boy said, Daddy, how high can you count? And his dad said, well, I don't know, son. How high can you count? He said, 1,542. He said, well, why'd you stop there? He said, the preacher finished preaching. So anyway, so I'm going to be watching for lips moving, counting. Uh, Hopefully that won't happen. But uh, it's just so wonderful to be here and to celebrate what an awesome blessing we have in this country. no, no people have ever been blessed with a country like we have. We know Solomon was supposed to be uh, and was the wisest leader of all times, and Israel prospered greatly. Uh, he was the wisest until he started having multiple wives, and that's never a good idea. But anyway, um, but we've been blessed with more freedoms, more opportunity, and this is still a place where a parent can tell a child you can be whatever you want to be and it's not beyond the realm of possibility to actually happen here. So we're blessed. Uh, The topic I was asked to and was thrilled to talk about was coming together for America. And the verses of scripture want to serve as our base, start out with it, then I'll be talking about some history and uh, we'll come back to it because it's still the most critical and uh, we'll read Matthew 22 35 through 40 and um, this is the um, Christian Standard Bible you find that And one of them, an expert in the law, wouldn't you know be a lawyer, uh, asked a question to test him. Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? He said to Jesus, that is, said to him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. But the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. 
And when you think about it, if you take the Ten Commandments and you outline them, all ten fit under one of those two headings. Love the Lord, love your neighbor. And you can put all ten commandments under one of those two headings. It's just a, a Jesus gave us the most important commands that all others fit under. Love God, love your neighbor. Um, I'm going to cover a little bit of history, but through it all, don't forget the most important two commands are those. Love God, love your neighbor. Um, back during the revolution, which is said to have begun in 1775, shots heard around the world. Um, 1776, you know, we had the Declaration of Independence and it was in 1775, though, that Washington was made the commander of all the revolutionary forces, the commander-in-chief back then. And some, I mean, there are a lot of miracles. Clearly, God's hand protected and guided the revolution. There are so many things that Washington and others pointed to and said, clearly, the hand of God protected us or was with us. They had defeats, and kind of like Sam Houston did years later, when you're facing a much superior force, you spend a lot of time retreating, looking for the best time to take on the superior, um, and that's what they did. But normally, there were no battles fought in the, the coldest part of winter. You waited till the spring thaw. Washington, and, and so many of our people had, had enlisted around when they heard about the Declaration of Independence. So December, Washington, and it's after December 24th, you know, they crossed the Delaware and defeated the, the greatest soldiers in the world, the Haitians, and that was a big win. But Washington was afraid that if they didn't stick together through the winter, people would not come back and it would be all over. You can read different accounts. I never stopped reading history. And I finished another book recently, actually two again on the revolution and the defeat of the British at Yorktown. But some historians say his greatest accomplishment was that first bitter winter keeping the troops together. Now he let some of the officers go home on leave, but Washington stayed. And you can tell from the letters that we have and things that he wrote, he longed so much to just go home back to Mount Vernon. He loved the farm. He loved being on the Potomac and longed to be there. And he had all these ideas of things he wanted to do there. Uh, but he stayed with the troops. So we end up with journal entries, letters home from soldiers writing about the bitter cruelty of the cold that winter. And they were, uh, didn't have sufficient clothing to stay warm. It was a difficult time. But the writing is similar to what one wrote home. He described all the bitter coldness and how horrible it was. And he said, if it weren't for the knowledge that our great leader is suffering every indignity that we are, 
I wouldn't be able to stand it. Washington knew that. He stuck it out with his men. And they made it through the winter and they continued on, but Washington basically didn't get to spend time at home for about eight years because he did not want the men to, uh, to lose heart and think that he was not with them in all things. Uh, and in fact, there are times, if you've seen that movie, Mel Gibson, The Patriot, uh, Mel Gibson grabs a flag at the end when, when troops are starting to retreat. There were times when Washington was afraid the men were losing heart and he would ride right up front and he knew that his men would not run and desert him when he was right there at the front. And in fact, one soldier wrote home and described all the people being killed around him in a horrendous battle. And he said, but when I looked up and saw the priceless head of our great general yelling encouragement to me, sir, I thought not of myself. He was a man for such a time as that was. And there has never been another leader like him. Uh, when I take, I like to be the one that takes students through the Capitol and do it at night. We have 15 to 18,000 come through the Capitol on average uh, each day. So I like to take students through at night. The school comes and has time for me to do that. But I always point to the picture of George Washington with his hand out and he has a piece of paper and he's standing before the Continental Congress. In 1783, he waited until after the Treaty of Paris, which ended hostilities and England officially recognized the United States as being free and independent. So December, he's there with his resignation in hand. And keep in mind, after they defeated the Haitians, uh, the Continental Congress got word that a lot of their troops might uh, just go home and say, well, I went out with a win and not come back. So December 27th of 1776, Continental Congress passed a law that gave Washington all the power to make all contracts he needed to. And basically they said, you know, we're giving, they sent a cover letter, basically said, we're giving you all this power over contracts, payment that we have, but we know you and we know when you have no further need of this power, you'll give it back. The trouble is in all of history before then, after then, there has never been someone who led a revolutionary military, won the revolution, and then came in and basically said, here's all the power back, I'm going home, I did what you asked. Now, that's extraordinary. Now, there was a general, Roman general named Cincinnatus that had uh, won great victory and went home to his farm, but this was different. Washington could have been anybody, anything, emperor, king, whatever he wanted. There were a couple efforts at a military coup and he stopped them himself. Uh, I was with a few other members of Congress coming back from the Southern Philippines where we have troops. We visit them in some remote areas. We stopped at the Malvids Islands to refuel, had lunch with some of their leaders. There was six years or so ago. And the leader next to me 
was saying, you know, we're a relatively new democracy. Now this is south of India, in the middle of the Indian Ocean. Beautiful little islands, white beaches, beautiful sand. Uh, but he said, you know, we're always hearing rumors about a military coup trying to take over. And he stops and he says, we never had a George Washington to set the proper example. So we're always worried about a coup. And I thought, I'm on the other side of the world, little bitty island, and these people have been taught the importance of what George Washington did and who he was. And we know in that bitter cold winter, uh, as we got into 1777, uh, there at Valley Forge, they were actually camping on land of the Potts family. And part of the Potts family was a 26-year-old named Isaac, married, kids. He, they were Quakers, and especially Isaac. And as Quakers, they didn't believe uh, in violence. Therefore, they were totally opposed to the revolution and thought it was a major mistake. So, uh, and there was an early biography in the early 1800s written about Washington trying to prove he was not a Christian and unfortunately, Chernow borrowed from him in a recent uh, biography. But his family said how he was, of course, a Christian. But Isaac Potts was out in the woods one night, and you've seen the print, I know, depicting what occurred that night. But he heard a man talking and it wasn't hard to slip up because of the snow and peer from behind a tree. And he saw Washington beside his big gray horse down on one knee praying out loud. And we know from Putt's family what was said. In fact, this is what they had said. Uh, he, con he had considered the Revolutionary War, and these are his words, wicked and hopeless. But Potts described hearing Washington's prayer and said that Washington, and I'm quoting, utterly disclaimed all ability of his own for this arduous conflict. What he says next, you don't often get this picture of George Washington. Potts said, Washington wept at the thought that irretrievable ruin which his, state, his mistakes might bring on his country and with the patriot's pathos spreading the interests of unborn millions before the eye of eternal mercy, Washington implored the aid of that arm which guides the starry host. Can you see that? Big six foot four general on a knee, praying, weeping. How many times have we had leaders that prayed and wept for their country and begged God not to cause others to suffer because of his mistakes? So Potts ended up saying, I have seen this day, what I shall never forget. Till now, I have thought that a Christian and a soldier were characters incompatible. 
But if George Washington be not a man of God, I am mistaken. And still more shall I be disappointed if God do not through him perform some great thing for this country. Now, our pastor of our local church and his wife had come up first term I was in Congress and he for some reason wanted to go tour the State Department. It's pretty boring, I don't recommend it. But as we were going through, they had an original copy of the Treaty of Paris, 1783. And in that, uh, David said, did you know the Treaty of Paris began like that? And I said, no, wow. If you're starting a treaty in which the most powerful country in the world is supposed to recognize your little country's right to be free and independent, how would you start it? Well, they wanted something that would be a powerful enough oath that the Brits would not want to break it. So in big letters, you can go online and see, big letters, it starts in the name of the most holy and undivided Trinity. That's how it started. That's the document that recognized and gave us independence. We declared independence, but this recognized it for good. That was big. So. After that, let me take you up to the 1830s. America had kind of gotten a bit lethargic. And in the 1830s and 1840s, there was what we now call the Great Awakening. And most of America came to know that there was the way, the truth, and the life. They came to know the Bible. And I think the most truthful historians indicate those were the seeds for the revolution that occurred. The, they learned that liberty is a gift of God and not of a government. And that laid the framework for what would become the revolution that led to the greatest amount of freedom any country had ever had. And you can find uh, parts of the Bible that are reflected in even having three branches, part of our constitution. 1787, finally ratified completely in 1789. Something else happened, started in 1789. That was a revolution in France. Went on for 10 years. Their revolution resulted in the leader of ultimately an emperor named Napoleon. So there'd been a lot of debate over the years how come our revolution ended up with this incredible free country and their revolution resulted in an emperor? And I think the historians have it most accurately that say our revolution was based on a desire for something God-given called liberty. The French Revolution was more based on something called revenge. Um, I was over in Normandy at the 75th anniversary of D-Day and uh, quite moving to be there on Omaha Beach and down going by Point de Hoc where our troops went up the cliff 
uh, led by Earl Rudder, later became president of A&M. I, yeah, and I did help start Rudder's Rangers down at A&M. And anyway, it's just moving to see what those guys did, what they went through. Um, but there at the big plaza in Paris, I'd never been there, but thousands of heads were cut off there. You look at our revolution, we didn't have thousands of heads cut off. They could have done that to the British, but it wasn't about revenge, it was about liberty. That's what they were seeking and you have to know that was God directed. And I've wondered at times, maybe that was so that the country that would do more to spread God's word around the world could come into being, that, that would be there to be the first country in the world to recognize Israel when it came back into being Seven minutes, I believe it was, after uh, Israel declared their independence, Truman recognized them, first country. But we've done more to spread the gospel and to get the gospel interpreted into all the different language. That move, uh, that effort is speeding up now. They've found better ways to interpret into local dialects. So it's moving forward. But the second great awakening happening around the 1840s. Many say that's what led, planted the seeds and led to the end of slavery, which cost us a civil war to get there. Lincoln in 1865, maybe not a month before he was assassinated, but in his second inaugural, and it's engraved in the inside of the Lincoln Memorial on the inside of the North Wall. Inside the South Wall is Gettysburg Address. But that second inaugural is amazing. And it's Lincoln wrestling with this idea of, uh, gee, how could a good God allow such terrible things to happen? And you can read the speech and, and know how it's really quite a good theological debate within himself. And he, I've wondered at times if somebody may not come in someday and sue and say, you can't have those words inscribed as great as they are. But on down into his speech, Lincoln says, he's talking about North and South, both read the same Bible, both pray to the same God. Each invokes his aid, God's aid against the other. It may seem strange that any man should dare to ask a just God's assistance in wringing their bread from the sweat of other men's faces, but let us judge not that we be not judged. He said, the prayers of both could not be answered. That of neither has answer, been answered fully. The Almighty has his own purposes. And then he goes on and ultimately says, but if God wills that this war continue until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said, and he quotes Psalm 19:9, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. That's who we've been. That's who we were as a country. And in fact, so much so that in 1892, there was a lawsuit that involved this issue of, of church and state. And by the way, separation of church and state I think most of you know it. It's not in the Constitution. 
That was something Jefferson put in a letter to the Danbury Baptist. And he, he mentioned a wall of separation, but to him it was a one-way wall. Of course we need religion and Christianity particularly engaged in government, but government is not supposed to be engaged in religion. But this is a president who every Sunday he was in Washington he attended church in the United States Capitol and he often ordered the Marine Band to come play the accompaniment, the hymns uh, for the church service. So he had a little different idea than what some people today try to make it out that our founders had. But in the Church of the Holy Trinity versus the United States, they go through about 14 pages describing all the evidence that shows that this is a Christian nation. And on page 15, they say this, Supreme Court, these and many other matters which might be noticed add a volume of unofficial declarations to the mass of organic utterances that this is a Christian nation. Now, President Obama had said more than once something that I, I think he's right. He said, we are not a Christian nation. I think he's right. We were, we started out that way, but we have made a hard turn. And it is important that people leave here and encourage others and help them to understand the basis of our liberty. We could have ended up with thousands of heads cut off. We didn't, there was a reason. We could have ended up making slavery even worse. I, I was greatly surprised and bothered to find out this year that right now there are over 40 million slaves in the world, more than at any other time in the world's history. It still goes on and it's an abomination, but we don't have slavery. And it took an ordained Christian minister uh, named Martin Luther King Jr to help bring about the civil rights movement that helped the Constitution actually mean what it said, that we were all supposed to be uh, equal and afforded equality under the law. If you look back at King David, I mean, they didn't, they, the reason they would fight was for safety, to preserve, and I know there's some people like Isaac Potts was originally that say, you know, you just should never fight. Individually, that's true. Individually as Christians, as believers, we're supposed to follow the Beatitudes and, and the great two commandments, love your neighbor. But when you are acting in the role of the government, you would fall under Romans 13. And as it says, you know, God doesn't give the, the sword to the government in vain. If you do evil, be afraid. Uh, so. You don't need the military turning the other cheek. They're there to fight for our safety. Some still continue to call the United States this imperialistic hegemony that we've tried to colonize the world. If that were true, they wouldn't speak Japanese in Japan. They wouldn't speak German and French in their countries. We've never been about imperialism. We've been about liberty. But and I, I saw President Trump Friday afternoon and he was saying, what did you think about what I, I did? Because he ordered the planes not to go and bomb 
would have killed apparently 150 people. And he decided that was not uh, a proper response to shooting down an unmanned drone. Um, he's an interesting guy and you don't see this in the news. I was told by somebody that's supposed to know that recognizing Israel, uh, Israel's capital to be Jerusalem, uh, that they had a very brutal discussion about it in the cabinet meeting and that all but three of the cabinet members were totally against it. And he was told that if uh, you declare Jerusalem to be the capital of Israel and recognize that, then I can tell you we don't have enough military members from all over the world we could pull together enough to win the world war you will start. And that would be enough to scare most people, but I'm told he responded, eh, I still think we ought to do it. Uh, <laughs> it's, <laughs> he needs prayer and we are supposed to pray for our leaders. But one more thing I want you to understand what's happening in the United States. We keep seeing the surveys that uh, more recent college students and college graduates believe socialism. A majority believe socialism is the way to go. Now, I, I didn't make much of this while Mueller was doing his investigation, but I was an exchange student to the Soviet Union for a summer. You know, I didn't feel like that was information Mueller needed to know. But anyway, um, but I was. And, and one of the lessons I learned being out at a collective farm um, 30 miles or so outside of Kiev, just all this expanse of acreage and I couldn't tell what, what was cultivated and what wasn't. And those of you that work on farms and ranches, you know July, and they're about the same latitude there in Ukraine where I was. Um, you know, you try to start early so you don't have to work in the hottest part of the sun. Here it was mid-morning, they're all sitting in the shade in the middle of the village and I tried to use the best Russian I could and and my mother once said son one of these days you're going to forget to smile somebody going to knock your block off so I tried to smile at when do you work out in the field and they all laughed and I thought I must not have said it right and one of them said in Russian I make the same number of rubles if I'm out there in the sun as I make if I'm here in the shade so I stay in the shade it won't work that form of government will not work and we had here in this country uh, a man named Whitaker Chambers. Back in the 30s, he was a hardcore communist. He was helping uh, the Soviet Union try to undermine this country. He was taking secrets from a man named Alger Hiss and helping pass them on to the Soviet Union. But he began to see the purges that went on and how horribly people were treated under a communist or if you prefer the term now progressive government and he was horrified and he became a Christian and he ended up testifying against Alger Hiss went, who had gone to Harvard, handsome, extremely articulate, very uh, high ranked in the State Department, had helped Roosevelt with some negotiations and people thought Whitaker Chambers was nuts. And, you know, gee, he admits he was a communist. How could he say those things? Well, ultimately, he had the evidence to prove 
and did that Alger Hiss had been helpful in bringing or in trying to bring down the United States behind the scenes. And anyway, uh, I recently read Whitaker Chambers' book, Witness, quite powerful. He quotes Dostoevsky in saying, the problem of communism is not an economic problem. The problem of communism is the problem of atheism. Um, Whitaker Chambers himself went on to say that the communist vision, or progressive if you prefer, is the vision of man's mind displacing God as the creative intelligence of the world. It's the vision of man's liberated mind by the sole force of its rational intelligence redirecting man's destiny. He said, man is driven by the noblest of his intuitions, the sense of his mortal incompleteness. But the moment the man indulged his freedom to the point where he also was free of God, it led him into tragedy, evil, and often the exact opposite of what he had intended. Now, that summer I was there, visited the only recognized seminary Russian Orthodox Seminary. It was a gated compound. And right outside the main gate, there was a multi-story building and the whole side of it had a painted picture of Lenin's face. And in Russian it said, Lenin Znami. You're going in to this seminary, but never forget, it's Lenin who is with us. And we used to joke, yeah, rubber ear and all, because he had to replace his ear with a rubber one when it deteriorated. But uh, that is the case. I went into this magnificent cathedral and it had become, been made into the museum of atheism. And it was all shooting down Christianity. I went into one church and there where you would have seen Jesus with all the children gathered around, it was Lenin with all the children gathered around. I really got nauseous. This is what happens when you start thinking that the nation is so special, we don't need God. We have the intellectual capability of going on without God. And that leads to the end. Now I know there's some preachers that say, well, you know, God, brought about 9-11 uh, because it was punishment or God brought about AIDS because it was punishment. But what I know, and I've been praying for wisdom since I was six. Of course, we start off singing, you know, uh, God a thousand years and ages as like, well, the scripture says a day is like a thousand years of the Lord. Uh, but I've been praying since I was six for wisdom and if you ask for wisdom, we're told you'll get it. But the problem with that verse, it doesn't say when. And so there are times I've been, Lord, I know a day like a thousand years to you, but I could use some wisdom today if you could just help me out here. But especially my days on the bench. But God knows the evil that is in men's hearts enough that you could crucify the perfect man. He knows that nature is fraught with such danger that natural occurrences go on. And unless his protective hand is there, the evils of mankind or the evils within just nature will overwhelm a country or people. 
I think when we've turned far enough, the protective hand comes off and nature takes its course. Now, going back, finish but with this, you know, love God, love, love each other, love your neighbor. Uh, my mother was brilliant, put herself through Baylor in two and a half years, didn't know till after she passed. She was also a member of an honor society. They were very smart. Um, her parents didn't have money to help her, but she worked full time. Amazing lady, taught eighth grade English most of her adult life. But uh, she was found to have a tumor and it was not cancerous, it was called meningioma, but they did surgery and they found it involved her medulla, the brain stem was embedded in the brain. They got what they could. They said, it's not cancerous, but it's gonna grow back. May take a year, may take 20, we don't know, but eventually it will take her. Well, it took 15. And uh, when her neurologist said, I think she's got only a matter of months left, we, we would all, we were four siblings, older sister and two younger brothers. You know, we'd take our families, we'd go see mom constantly. But uh, we decided when we got that word, let's, let's just the four kids go spend a weekend with mom, celebrating her. So we did, uh, Friday night. Saturday, we were sitting at our breakfast table and like we used to do, just sitting around laughing, cutting up for hours. And you could see the little handprints of my siblings' children. Um, a lady that was helping mom when she couldn't clean the house was, uh, had started to clean those little handprints off. She said, no, 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 leave those. I wanna I want keep seeing those little handprints on the window. But she's there by then in a wheelchair. Just saying anything was very difficult. And we had a great time kidding, laughing, talking about old memories, wonderful memories, and kidding around each other. And after a few hours, mom said, this? And we all stopped because we're there for her. However long it took her to say it, was fine. She finally got out. Is my favorite thing. Sunday night when I was driving home, it hit me. If you were a hev the heavenly parent, wouldn't what we were doing be your favorite thing. We were loving mother. We were loving each other. Wouldn't those be your favorite things? If we get back, we can disagree. My sibling, my older sister is a, a staunch Democrat and we have disagreements, but I love her and she loves me. We can disagree. You know, I, I used to say in deacons meetings, when people would say, we ought to be all in agreement. I'm going, look, if everybody agrees, like a preacher in the 50s said back in Mount Pleasant, you know, if everybody agrees on everything, everybody but one's unnecessary. It's okay to disagree. But we need to love each other and come together as a nation before it's too late. And when you do that, you will find just as C.S. Lewis did, just as Whitaker Chambers did, there is one way, one truth, and one life. And no one comes to the Father without him. We're going to have an invitation now. 
And I ask Mark to step up. If, if you need to make a decision in your life, now's the time. Mark. Thank you so much, Louis, for sharing with us and reminding us and bearing witness of how God's hand has been on the lives of people in this country. And our choir reminding us that God's hand has been on us because of the cross and challenging us, will we take a stand and will we tell the world of God's great love? Will we be witness bearers of what he's done? When we are silent, that's when our country gets off base, right? But when we stand for God and who he is, that's when we shine a light on, on what will never change. God was the same yesterday, today, and forever. And maybe you don't have a story of how God has impacted your life. Today would be a good day to begin your personal story with the Lord. And there'll be people here at the front that would love to share that with you, of how God can change your life and how you can be a witness bearer of what he does in your life. We love you to have that opportunity to come and hear more about our great savior. Would you stand with me and let's pray and we'll sing a song. Father God, we just come before you today and we acknowledge that you are God and you are in heaven and you delight in your people. Oh, Father, we sin, we fail. We are quiet when we should speak. And yet you are so gracious to us and love us and call us, call us to you. And so, Father, I just pray that you would just continue to to work in the lives and in the hearts of your people, that you would call people who do not yet have a personal relationship with you. And may we be faithful witness bearers to tell of your great love, your great grace. Father, may we be like George Washington, weeping and praying that our life would lead people to you and that it would not have dire, dire consequences, but that you would hold us in your hand. God, we thank you. We thank you for giving us one more day to stand, to stand for you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.